And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast Emily Tamkin. Emily is a journalist based in Washington, D.C., and she's the author of a new book that's really, uh, really interesting. And, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it as a bad Jew myself, titled Bad Jews A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. So, uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So why don't we just start with the basic first question? What compelled you to write this book? And I, I think it's this is a topic that is very interesting to me because uh, I, I do notice a, a very significant generational divide, particularly on questions related to Israel, which we'll get into uh, between millennial Jews and, and their baby boomer um, elders. So mm-hmm. I imagine that has something to do with that with generational divide. But why don't you let us know why did you write this book after your book on Soros? Yeah, um, it really comes directly out of my book on Soros and that one thing that came up a lot is and like criticism of Soros, you know, I, as I write the book, I think is completely fair and appropriate, but it's different from conspiracy and it's different from anti-Semitic attacks. Um, and one thing that one hears sometimes in response to, hey, that's actually an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that you just said about this person is that it's not anti-Semitic because he's not really Jewish. And Soros, you know, for those listeners who who don't know, is a it you know survived. Um, Nazi occupation of uh, or Nazi rule of Hungary in World War II, uh, hid out as a as a Christian, and and though he himself is not religious and has a complicated relationship to Judaism, you know he he still is Jewish and has spoken about it as has, has claimed this identity. Um, so this really bothered me the idea that that you could sort of strip somebody of their Jewishness in order to better attack them. And when I sat with it for a little bit, I sort of thought that it was bothering me not only because of Soros, but also because of me and my own relationship to Jewishness and to Judaism. And also, I wrote this in the Trump years, which are in some ways still with us, I think, when it felt like people were just constantly throwing the label of like Shonda for Degoyim or like, oh, how could you, you know, this is how how could you do this to your Jewish values? And, and it went, I mean, you know, I... As uh, many a reviewer of this book noted, I'm, I'm more progressive uh, than conservative, but but I think it did work both ways. Where you had, you know, the, the majority of American Jews are liberal and would look at somebody like Stephen Miller and say, like, how could he abandon his Jewish history and and promote these kinds of immigration policies? And on the other hand, you had a minority of American Jews saying, how could you not support Trump? Look what he does for Israel. And by the way, this is then echoed by Trump and his allies as well. So for all those reasons, I set out to write this book. I know this is kind of a long answer, but I did also want to say that I really went back and forth before writing it over whether or not I was the right person to write the book because I had internalized so much of this, of, of the bad Jew label, right? Like I, I had a very secular upbringing and I didn't go to Hebrew school and I hadn't been to Israel before writing the book and on and on. And I finally realized that actually, um, I was I was putting on myself a framework that I think is others should reject. And actually, I think like obviously you need to have a certain amount of knowledge and understanding to write a book. Um, but actually, I think that that moment of like, oh, am I really Jewish enough to do that? Um, let me an empathy that was very useful in writing the book. 
Uh, no, that's a great answer. So why don't we just start at the beginning because it's roughly a historical survey. So start yeah. where you want and then we could go, we could just go forward. Sure. It's a roughly 100 year history. It starts, basically it starts in, 19, in the 1920s. Uh, and the reason that I chose this time is that this is really, I mean, as as you know, Danny, um, this is the period where American Jewish immigration is really cut off um, thanks to xenophobic, I, I think xenophobic American immigration legislation. And so instead of Jews coming to America, you have Jews in America, right, who are trying to figure out what it means to be Jews, in, not just Jews in America, but American Jews. This is an oversimplification. Some Jews come to America after this period of time. And, and we can talk about this later. Like there are, um, you know, sort of smaller immigration waves later in the 20th century that changed the fabric and texture of American Jewishness again. Um, but basically it's about over that period of time, sort of from the 1920s to the 2020s, these dual questions of how do you render yourself legible to the broader United States as American Jewish community or communities? And how do you as an individual American Jew render yourself legible or not to other American Jews? You know, so if we look at the, there have been Jews in the United States for as long as there's been a United States. And if you look at the very beginning, they were small enough in number to really, for the most part, be treated as like other white Americans who prayed differently. And we can talk about the label of white there. Um, but in the late 1800s and early 1900s, this stops being the case. There's a real, uh, the, 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 the number of Jews in America increases dramatically and they become sort of less, two things. One, the United States more broadly becomes less comfortable with just accepting them as other Americans. Uh, and two, some of the Jews who come in are, are don't see themselves that way, right? They don't see themselves as just white people who pray differently. They see themselves as, as an ethnicity or a culture. Um, and so the early part of this book is really about navigating that. Like, what does it mean? to? I think the United States understands race and religion really well, but it doesn't really understand. It, 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 those are the hierarchies that we've had in this country, right? It, it hasn't always been or has really been like ethnic or cultural. And so I think for American Jews in this period, you know, something I really stress in this book is that American Jewish leaders in this period understand this and so really cling to this, no, no, we're just white, like we're just white Americans who pray differently. That's how we should be treated. We, we don't want to be treated uh, as differently. And, and that's really when in the 1920s and, you know, sort of race science is very popular, eugenics are popular, um, nativist politicians who use rhetoric that I think if you go back and it's actually quite similar to what's being used today, but no matter, um, the argument against it is, is not like that's discriminatory, that's wrong. It's why, wh why don't you think that America can Americanize us? Right. And don't you understand that we are white and should be treated as such? I'll, I'll sort of break there if there's any of that that you Sure. Yeah. No, it's interesting because there's uh, something similar happening around um, with Arab Americans at the same time in a, a variety of uh, court cases in the Midwest. So this was a common strategy. And of course, uh, Jewish intellectuals come up with the idea of the melting pot, someone like uh -huh. Horace Callan and things along those lines. But I think it, this is actually a good place because it, it starts so early. But um, how, how does the category of whiteness fit into your study? Um, because it's obviously become a very popular term of analysis really since the the 1990s um and the rise of so-called whiteness studies and yeah. um 
uh, scholarship of that nature. And 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 to me, I, I'll just lay my cards on the table. Uh, I basically think Jews were not white until World War II and after. Um, and so it's very frustrating to me. And, and when people go back and they look at like the 1930s and, and the Jews and they're like, oh, these are just white people. I just don't think that was historically the case. I think things do change after the war. Uh, so that's basically my take on Jew- Jewishness and whiteness is that effectively Jews are today white. And there's been a process of, of whiteness, white, 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 whitenification, I guess, over the course of the second half of the 20th century. Um, but there were still ambiguities into the 1950s and before World War II, I would say they were not white, particularly Eastern European Jews and Sephardic Jews and the Mizrahi Jews, even though um, my understanding of the demographics, it was mostly uh, Eastern European Ashkenazic Jews were the most in this country. Um, but I don't know. So what, what's, what's your take on, on, on that debate and where do you see it coming in? Yeah, I think it's important to differentiate. Well, first of all, I want to be clear that when I say that Jews have been, and most American Jews, I should say, since not all, um, have been and are white, I am not saying, I think I think sometimes people think that I'm saying that, like, that means Jews were bad. You know what I mean? Or, like, that means the Jews were oppressive, or that means the Jews didn't um, suffer from persecution and white supremacy, and that's not what I'm saying at all, number one. Number two, I think it's really important to differentiate between cultural whiteness, uh, where I would agree with you that it, it didn't sort of wasn't enjoyed until the period that you just talked about, and whiteness under the law. Um, so, you know, in 1790, the Naturalization Act passes, and basically it says that you need to be white to naturalize, to, become, to come here and become a citizen of the United States, and under this Jews are indeed able to naturalize. Um, point, point of clarification. Yeah. So when yeah. does the, the identification of Christian comes in? Because that was the argument that Lebanese Americans and other Arab Americans made is that they were Christian and therefore they were white. I, I believe that does enter the equation after 1790 where it's not just whites, but Christian actually enters. Yeah. But correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And you could, no, no, no. And you can also say that like there are points where in like in, in, in various states, they debate uh, uh, throughout America, uh, especially this early period of American Jewish history, they debate like, do you need to be Christian in order to be considered a part of the state? And Maryland, so I'm in D.C., Maryland is right nearby. Um, and it's you could not hold office. So this, there, there are exceptions like you could not hold office in Maryland if you were not uh, Christian. This is eventually repealed through something called the um, the Maryland Jew law, which I don't think was like the most sympathetic label, but no matter. But and so you're right to say that there there is like Christianity is also important in this period of American immigration history. And and yes, there are quotas and yes, there's discrimination, but American Jews and the, the reason that they're able to become culturally white after World War II is that they're able to take advantage of, I would say one of the reasons is they're able to take advantage of the GI Bill, right? And they're able to move out to the suburbs and they're able to sort of get these markers of white Americana. Um, and they're able to do this because they already have these legal protections, if that makes sense. So I agree that especially in like East Coast urban areas, Jews from Eastern Europe are not treated as, do not see themselves as white and are not necessarily treated, or certainly not in political rhetoric, treated as white people. But they enjoy rights and privileges that, for example, Black Americans did not and do not have. Like the first... No, oh, uh, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, it would be yeah. it would be wild to argue otherwise. No, I, I I totally I totally agree. Um, and particularly if you're in the in the American South, it's much better to be a Jew um than a um an African American. Um, well, we should I was also say we, out- yeah 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 no totally. And we should also say that it plays differently in different parts of the country. So there's an anecdote um, Very much that so. I have in my book that I got from a book called GI Jews. Um, 
uh, by Deborah Dash Moore were basically Deborah this, Dash Moore, yeah, classic yeah, where, book, yeah. But basically, this this one guy wants to sign up to be, I think it's to, to to serve in World War II, and he goes to New York, and he didn't know like the right summer camp, and he's sort of like read as a Jew, and they're like, no, 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 you have to go to this other like other thing that you don't really want to be doing. So he goes down to Baltimore, where he just like presents as a white guy, right? Like they're like, what, like what's like, what do you mean, like Jewish difference? And he's able to sign up and the way that he wants. So it, it's 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 like it's not especially what we we dig down culturally, it's not the same at all in different parts of the country. And I think especially, as I said, in these northeastern uh, U.S. cities, it's very much there's there's very much a cultural distinction. Not only between Jews and non-Jews, but between more established, assimilated, Austrian and German Jews. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Big, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. and 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 I should say that I that this next point is you at the beginning of this of writing this book put me in touch with Devin Nar, who is a uh, a scholar of Sephardic Jewish identities. I put you um, in touch with Devin, right? Am I remembering yeah, that correctly? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He and so and one of the things that oh, that oh I also up, noticed Emily Devin is in the book and I am not. So I, know, I forgive you, I I, I forgive I you publicly. Thank it's you. okay, everyone. Thank it's you. okay. It's okay. I I there's thank no, you. So this, this is no why bad we blood between the bad Jews. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> no, Devin's, Devin the gra- quoted, Devin's great. Devin's the best. Um, yeah. but he he one of the things that he noted is that so like you have the German Jews who are sort of embarrassed of the the Eastern European Jewish immigrants and are trying to like get them to not seem so Jewish, like to not, not seem so like other, right? And at the same time, you have both of these groups not really sure at all what to do with Jews from, say, like what's now Turkey, right? And 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 Devin's argument is that in part, this is because many of these Jews present as not white and the, Euro- the Central Eastern European Jews don't want like their status to be further shaken by these people who maybe look more, Middle Eastern, or you know, or or, or or look like they're going to have a harder time to or racist uh, assimilating into the United States. Um, and I also think there's uh, there's a, you know, I, I think that's that's documented and that's true. And there's also an element of like, what is Ladino? You know what I mean? Like where these people are like, well, well, we're Jews and Jews speak Yiddish and you don't. So it's between uh, non-Jews and Jews, it's between Eastern Euro- European Jews, and then between Ashkenazi Jews who were, from this point on, the majority of American Jews, and Sephardic Jews as well. Uh, Emily, I have a question uh, as an outsider here to this uh, discussion to some degree. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the salience of the term bad Jew, just kind of, you know, across all these different uh, disagreements and just kind of what it means. It, it, it strikes me that, I mean, you know, these, the people apply labels like this in other religious contexts. You're a bad Christian. You're a bad Catholic. You're a bad this. You're a bad that. But in, in this case, it, it doesn't necessarily just mean like you're a bad practicing Jew. It, it, it has a deeper connotation, it feels like. And I'm, I'm curious if you could sort of talk about that for people who are not within that community, what it, what it really means to call somebody a bad Jew. Yeah, I think this is a great question. I um, I got a question early on in like doing press for this book where someone said, is it only Jews who feel that they're bad? And I was like, well, no. Um, and actually, last year, there was my book, Bad Jews, and there was also Bad Mexicans and Bad Gays. So um, I, I, I don't mean to say that this at all that this is uniquely Jewish phenomenon. I do think, though, that as you say, there's there are some differences because being Jewish is 
it's a religion and it's a set of ethnicities and it's also cultural. There are so many ways in which you can be told that you're being bad. Um, and I think what happens in the United States, and I sort of alluded to, I mean, all over the world, but I'm, this is a book about the United States. One of the things that you see happen is that there are sort of two realms in which this label is applied, right? There's the religious, which is, which basically says, if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, you're bad. I don't personally really agree with this. Um, like I'm reform. I don't think that makes me like a worse Jew than a more observant denomination. Um, but I do get it. Like it's, it's a, Judaism has a lot of things. One of those orthopractic, there are certain set of things that you're supposed to be doing. But the other is that there's this political realm where if you don't have a certain set of political values or positions, it, it's sort of like they, they, you know, taking up this religious idea of like, oh, you're not observing properly and putting it onto the political. So uh, a decade ago, over a decade ago, Ben Shapiro tweets, uh, there have always been bad Jews in, in like throughout history. And in the United States, those those bad Jews vote for the Democratic Party. I'm paraphrasing, but that it was, it was the bad Jews vote for Democrats. So there's like this is. I guess this is what bothers me more than someone saying like, oh, you don't keep kosher. So that means that you're doing it wrong. Right. This like this this application of like the language of failure to observe to political positions and this and this also goes into i mean this you know you said at the beginning this generational divide on israel or positions on israel i think this speaks directly to that right i think that if you for certainly the second half of the 20th century or certainly since the 60s on you know if you didn't take a certain position on israel it was like you're you're you know you're a bad jew are you even a jew I think is the other is the next step. It's not just that you're bad; it's that you're not really you're not a real Jew. I mean, you see this. You saw this in like the uh, the Pennsylvania governor's race, right, where the Jewish candidate's opponent's wife said, "Well, like we're so much more supportive of Israel than he is. Like, how could we be anti-Semitic?" Actually, uh, Emily, thanks for bringing that up. I want to ask Derek. Derek, do you think I'm a good Jew or a bad Jew? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I, I, I want to say that one of the things that people have sort of, I think some people think that like I was going to list like who is good and who is, the reaction to this book has been interesting. And that some people like, I thought she was going to tell us who the bad Jews were. Um, and I don't, I mean, part of the point of the book is that every, like everyone is someone else's bad Jew. And very often you're your own bad Jew. Um, and I think I, one of the things that I try to do in the book is move away from like, I'm bad, I'm good you're doing it wrong, I'm doing it wrong, to like, are you are you relating to this identity in a way that's like meaningful and, and compelling and significant and honest to you? And can we go from there instead of being like, well, I win the debate because I'm, I'm the good Jew. So let's get back to the chronological narrative and talk about how do you think sh- uh, things did or didn't ship o- a shift over the course of the mid-century? I think they, well, okay, one thing I think that didn't shift was that there's this trend um, in American Jewish history of looking back and saying that was the time that we were really authentic. That was the time that we were really Jewish. So you, before World War II, you, you have this already, right? You have Jews in New York saying, like, we were really better Jews back in, back in Europe. Um, but a lot of things do, do shift, right? You have Jews moving out to the suburbs at... Uh, at faster periods than your average American. 
you have um, anti-Semitism, which is at an all-time high during World War II, drops. So we have a greater acceptance of American Jews. Uh, the 50s see this see the rise of like the United States as a religious um, counter to the Soviet Union in the minds of administration at the time. And I think that you know you have Jews who who pick up on this and say, okay. Like, got it. We're going to live in the suburbs and go to our house of worship, which is different than yours. Um, and that's how we're going to relate to this thing. Um, you know, in, in the mid 20th century, you have American Jews both accused of being socialists and communists and also opening in, in the cases of case of American Jewish establishment organizations, opening up their, you know, their their membership lists and saying, yep, here you go, government. Like, these are... Here they are. Here are the, the sympathizers. And I think, so. I, I, which is a long way of saying, like, I think that American Jews in this period sort of f- figure out a way for the moment to have stability, even if it comes with great angst and, like, how assimilated, how acculturated should we really be? And the other thing that happens is you have the establishment of the state of Israel, right? And especially, which I think there's this idea that, like, American Jews didn't support it until 67. And I, I don't think that that's actually worn out um but it is you know i think one of the things that we see that has been recorded is that american jews by and large felt a tremendous guilt following world war ii and that one of the ways this manifests is the support for israel but certainly after 67 and 73 it becomes really the center of american jewish communal life and that's a change that you don't have i mean that's that's a real break from the beginning of the century sorry one other thing that's a big difference that i should mention and this is another person you put me in touch with really helps like clarify a lot of this for me is Kate Rosenblatt, um, who does it, you know, if listeners, if you're interested more on this, I would say Kate Rosenblatt and Carol McGinnity and their writings on intermarriage. The other thing that happens over the course of the 20th century is that American Jews freak out about intermarriage and also don't stop intermarrying, right? Like the number, particularly from the mid-century on increases the the percentage of american jews who marry people who are not jewish and so you have just like decades of hand-wringing and hair pulling over like what does this mean are we disappearing uh you know how are we going to this 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 are we assimilating or acculturating what does intermarriage you know how big of a threat uh is intermarriage so i mean like listeners i should put my cards on the table and say that i myself am married to a person who's not jewish um, I'm not not biased about this, and perhaps that comes across in how I talk about people in the mid mid uh, 20th century dealing with this. But we should also say that these American Jewish institutions in the 70s and onward hire social scientists to basically tell them, or who do basically tell them, uh, yeah, it's a it's a big problem. Like this is really what you should focus on this and Israel. And I think from you know 60s 70s on those those become the centers of American Jewish institutional life. So how do all these transformations affect internal Jewish dynamics? And I think that'll probably naturally bring us to 1967. And and I'm curious if you see 67 as a hinge point or not. One other trend that I should mention is this this small but mighty intellectual circle known basically the, the neoconservatives, right, who start out by their own, I mean, they sort of say that they started out as, as leftists. And I think in some ways that's true. In some ways, if you look at the writing, I think there's a reactionary streak in there from the beginning. Um, but basically this is, uh, you know, they, 
their writings quite consciously define American Jews basically against Black Americans and 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 make the argument that American Jews belong in America's white elite and end up being extremely hawkish with respect to you know the Soviet Union and and are end up in a place even though they actually weren't this at the beginning but end up in a place where they are ferociously pro-Israel. They are to the right of most of American Jews, but we should also say that they are, I think, quite intellectually influential. Okay, so this is sort of the lay of the land in the mid-20th century. Is 67 an inflection point? I think, I think yes and no, which I know is a cop-out answer. I mean, it is in that American Jews sort of more vocally center their communal life around Israel than they were before. And it is in that, I think, tensions that were perhaps more under the water in American Jewish work in the civil rights movement. And by the way, I should say, like, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, and, and obviously there are acceptance to all of this. For example, like, traditionally Orthodox Jews, by and large, don't move out to the suburbs. And, you know, um, in the 1960s, immigration law has changed, and Jews of color come to the United States. And, like, in the, you know, we have, there's a chapter in my book on Soviet Jews and Persian Jews who, by and large, like don't fit the narrative that I'm outlining here. But um, I think 67 is and is not an inflection point on Israel, as I just said, and also and, and on, on civil rights. It sort of brings to the fore tensions between white American Jews or white passing American Jews, if you like, and Black Americans that that I would argue like were there before 67, um, but come to the surface more. But I think it's also not an inflection point in that like American Jews did support Israel from its advent by and large, right? And like those tensions were there. So I think it it maybe brings things out into the open a bit more. But to me, that's different from like, oh my gosh, everything changed. So here's a question. How did the, these earlier trends of whiteness interact with Jewish support for a state that ultimately defines itself in an ethno-nationalist way? I think that American Jews did not necessarily like I think American Jews at the beginning um, and and for decades, the majority of American Jews told themselves that this was a liberal project, right? Like very consciously said, this is a liberal democratic project. Like, yes, it's a place where Jews can be safe. Uh, Finally, after all these years, there's this sort of this sort of thinking. But it's also like they're there and they're going to build it based on, you know, Jewish values, and of course, those are going to be liberal. Um, and I think what what was actually there from the beginning, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here. I think this is all a matter of historical record. I mean, it is controversial, but it's also a matter of historical record. Is that from the beginning, that's that's really a, a tough claim to back up if you look at the actions of the Israeli authorities, right? I think increasingly, to like now, today, all these years later, American Jews are having a harder time making the case that this was, that this is in any way a liberal state. Um, but you have people like Brandeis and like Judge Julian Mack saying like Jewish and American values and Zionist values are one and the same. They go together. This isn't actually true, right? I mean, like if you look at the composition of the United States and if you look at, or, or, or I should say, I guess if you look at the, what the United States purports to be as, as, uh, your listeners know, that is very different from what it is in reality. Um, and if you look at the values that most American Jews have historically said that they've had, that's, that's actually not true. Um, but that was the story that American Jews told themselves throughout this time. 
one of the things that I'll say is that I know that a response often to, you know, young American Jews support social justice and they put their own perceptions of the world onto Israel and Israel has a different racial hierarchy. Like, yes, totally, totally true. That's fine. That's fair. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that it's ultimately an ethno-nationalist. It's, it's explicitly an ethno-nationalist project. By design. I mean, like, right. I, I, this is why liberal liberal Zionism is always a contradiction in terms, as far as I'm concerned, intellectually. You cannot have uh, a, a liberal state defined by an ethno-national constitution. I mean, the right of return is flat out an ethno-nationalist <laughs> law. <laughs> I mean, and, and look, there, there are people who would say, like, well, like, there's, you know, there's a state religion in the UK, there's a state, you know, there's there's a state religion in, in Nordic countries and those are democracies, but but ultimately it is it, it's an inherent contradiction in terms. And what's more, if we look at Israeli also history, the Nordic countries are racist. I mean, like right, they, right, they right, also had right. horrible immigration policies. Right, How was right, that? A, right, yeah. And there have been certain choices made that have made it less that of of liberal Zionists have chosen the Zionist over the liberal, right, over and over and over again for the past seventy five years. And I actually think it's less, I mean, I think that the, the, the I think, I, I have said, I, I was never going to call this book, going to call this book anything but bad Jews, but the other sort of title I had in my head was stories we tell ourselves and why they're incomplete. And I think in both of these cases, like Jewish relationship, the, the majority of American Jews relationship to whiteness and their relationship to Israel, I do think that, uh, that American Jews, for the most part, have told themselves a story, right? Which is like, we suffered, we came here, we worked really hard, we've supported others in their quest for justice and democracy, and like, look at us. And and we support this this other country that's no, it's not perfect, but it's it's still Jewish and democratic. And like I'm sorry, those those two things there are parts of it that are that have been true at various moments, but in both cases it's much more complicated than that. Um and I think particularly with respect to American Jewish support for Israel. Um, like American Jews chose to ignore massive parts of that story for years in many, like including today in many cases or in some cases. So how do things change over the seventies and eighties and into the nineties as we get into our own lifetimes? And uh, it'd be interesting to see for me to hear at least how you define sort of the state of play for uh, the millennial generation. Yeah, I think in the, I think in the 70s and 80s, what we see is a sort of like a celebration of explicit Jewishness, right? There's a move from, and again, this is like you have, I will recommend to your listeners the book Black Power Jewish Politics, um, which is basically about, one, it's about how the 60s and 70s, the stories of white Jewish black relations are more complicated than perhaps we've been led to believe. But it's also about how American Jews look at the civil rights movement, you're like, wait a minute, we can embrace our own identity, you know, in a really uh, open and confident way and support explicitly Jewish causes. Now, some might say that civil rights in a pluralistic United States is an explicitly Jewish cause, but that is not by and large what these people meant. So you have, uh, you have that. I would argue that the millennial generation has been defined by the crumbling of these two pillars, of intermarriage in Israel, which were which were core for much of for much of the 20th century. What do I mean by this? Um, in from the 90s on, I, certainly from the assassination of Rebbe to to today, 
you have a generation that's really only seen the situation between Israelis and Palestinians get more violent. Um, and the, the sort of, oh, well, a two-state solution is just like, it's coming. Uh, that has seemed less and less and less and less likely. Um, I mean, just have, uh, flat out, Eric, tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, basically, every expert agrees that that is an impossibility right, at this point. Right, right. Yeah. So, it's so, and, and also not an Netanyahu, option anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Netanyahu has like been in power for most of my lifetime, right? And and like I'm not I'm not trying to lay the entire like the entire project at his feet, but I'm saying like it's one specific. It's, he's being voted for, right? So it's I've sometimes said in like talking about this book that even if uh, Israelis were the most progressive, like even if this was the most progressive society, Israeli Jews and American Jews would still be different would still be living in different countries. And that is not the case, right? Like that is very, we, we, American Jews by and large, uh, maybe are not left wing, but, but are liberal leaning and America, uh, Israeli Jewish, Israeli society is increasingly right leaning. So you have these two moving farther apart. And the other crumbling pillar is, is this idea that we're going to remain somehow like it, it, the Jews will only marry other Jews and that will preserve our distinctiveness. This is a big concern with people. Some people I've spoken to about this book, American Jewish Distinctiveness, um, and how Jews marrying people who are not Jewish might change that. I think, and I've said this before, like, I think basically this debate is now over in practice, although it very much still continues in Jewish spaces. Um, if you got married between 2010 and 2020 and you're not Orthodox, there's like a 70 plus percent chance that you married somebody who's not Jewish. Um, now we know from research by people like, community who i mentioned earlier that that actually doesn't mean that you're checking out of jewish life and in some cases it could mean that you're becoming more actively consciously involved in what it means to be jewish to you um but this has been a real like moment i I think for communal jewish institutions that's been quite difficult and i by that i mean both like political communal institutions and religious institutions you have the yeah sorry go ahead That's what I wanted to get into. So I think a lot of the time this generational divide is expressed through through institutions. So could you talk about, you were about to get into it, so sorry I cut up. Let's talk about first the religious one, which is obvious, which is that no one's religious anymore and the Jews are also less religious. Uh, and then things like APEC and J Street and, um, you know, Republican donor, donor Jews and things like that. Yeah. All that I mean, good stuff. <clears throat> I, th- I I think that we are in today a very pluralistic moment, which I think is scary to institutions because if everybody's sort of if everybody's if there's an awareness of how many different options there are for how to live quote unquote Jewishly, that means you don't necessarily need to turn to the same institutions to which people have turned for the last however many decades. So in the case of synagogues, like I actually joined a synagogue in the, in during the course of writing this book because I was doing interviews with people who were synagogue members and I was jealous of them and like actually it has been very nice so i i don't say this to like slam synagogues at all but the mid 20th century version where like you expressed your jewishness by joining a synagogue even if you didn't go that is not that's just not what people are doing anymore there are a few reasons for this as you said nobody's religious two uh it's really expensive three in the case of so reform jews reform judaism has recognized patrilineal jews since the 1980s but i think you know the conservative movement is really having, I, I spoke to a conservative synagogue not too long ago. I think it's, it's, they're having a hard time because on the one hand, there are people within the movement who, who still truly believe that intermarriage is against, like it's, it's religiously wrong. Um, 
But also, if you're not Orthodox and there's a 70-something percent chance that you're marrying someone who's not Jewish, you're going to want, and you want to be a part of the synagogue, you're probably going to go to a place where you feel welcome. There is an option for that, right? And it's not the conservative movement right now. Um, although, I mean, they're, I know they're trying to navigate it. I know that there are like, you know, third ways and that, or, or there are individual rabbis who are navigating this differently. But, but so that's the situation with the synagogues. And relatedly, there's a big, I think, how politically involved synagogues want to be and how, how politically involved their congregants want them to be is also a, something that they're navigating, right? Like how some people say like, well, politics is the new religion, but, but the, how, you know, I know people who really, really want politics when they go to school. And I know people who are like, why is the rabbi talking about abortion? So that's, I think that's a challenge that people who work in that space are facing today. In terms of the big institutions, one thing that I think is, is so funny, you know, J Street, so I think most of you listeners probably know, but this is the self-professed like pro-Israel, pro-peace organization. Um, they still say that they they support, uh, I believe they still say that they support a two-state solution, which we covered earlier on. Like, I, I think they, they're non-part, I would, I would just find them sort of like center-left. They look like they're liberal. When this organization was established, the way that people spoke about them was as though they were coming to like sink Israel into the sea. You know, like it was, and APAC still today tweets things like, J Street's a lot of things, but it's not pro-Israel. Like it, it, it's, I think J Street has since, from its inception over in the early 2000s, has really moved more to the center. I think is is now representative of where a lot of American Jews are. Um, APAC is still the most prominent pro-Israel organization. Um, I would not say that it is representative of most American Jews, not not even because of Israel, but because they endorsed candidates who voted not to certify the 2020 presidential election. Um, so I think they're, they're still like the heaviest hitter in the Israel, the pro-Israel space, but not, you know, not with, with American Jews. I think have, have in the same way that they um, really align themselves with the good not so many years ago, have, are, are increasingly aligning themselves with the Republican Party. I also think, and this goes back to being a pluralistic moment, you see these smaller groups pop up and try to push and change the conversation. So I'm not even talking about like Americans for Peace now, but I'm talking about Juice, um, uh, JVP and like If Not Now, which was which is really, I think, I know they have people of all ages, but is in many ways like the quintessential, I think, millennial American Jewish group. Um, it was formed in 2014, you know, was was assent- was explicitly against the occupation. Has since, I think, sort of been pushed by some of its members further to the left. I, that's my sort of description of them. I don't know if they would say the same. You know, push. The last chapter of this book is called "Pushing Jews," and it's basically about these people at uh, not the fringes, but at the at, at walking to the edge and saying, like, "Well, wait, let's see what's over here." You know, like, what if we didn't? What if we didn't stand in the center? Let's let's see where we can go over here. And that's true of you know, like queer Jews who are doing Orthodox style tech study outside of Orthodox synagogues because they don't feel like they have a place there for whatever reason. And it's true of Jews who are like, I actually don't think that Zionism has anything to do with Judaism. Basically, and they say that very explicitly, you know, and 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 that actually to be an American Jew should be to be an anti-Zionist. Like that's that is a case that people made to me in the course of writing this book. And so I think we're at this moment now where we're Jews for liberal Jews and Jews on the left, there's that like walking 
again, walking to the edge and saying like, well, wait a minute, what, what if this was the center or what if there was no center or what if, what if we were over here? However, the reality remains that, and I, I want to be, <laughs> I want to be careful in how I say this because I, anytime you talk about Jews and money and Jews and politics and Jews and influence, you, you, I really do believe that you have to be very careful not to use anti-Semitic tropes. There's a chapter in this book on Jews and money. And I really like, I, I write about going back and forth on how to write about it. So I do not mean to imply anything when I say that it is a reality that some of the most powerful and yes, influential um, donors and voices and and uh, individuals in American Jewish life today remain more conservative. And that's true politically here, and that's true with respect to Israel. Emily, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this. There is in the discourse increasingly uh, on the right uh, an attempt to make anti-Zionism inherently implicitly anti-Semitic and to identify these, to map these things basically one to one another uh, on one another. Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, explicitly said that uh, to his his own employees uh, a few days ago and, you know, told them. Uh, if you don't agree with that, you can find someplace else to work. I mean, this is like internal, you know, uh, internal communications from there. I, 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 I'm curious, you know, as that has become, as th- th- there's been this attempt to say, uh, you can't be, you know, an- not, not only can you not be a good Jew and be anti-Zionist, it's actually anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist. And, uh, you know, and, and all these organizations, Greenblatt included, uh, and the ADL kind of, uh, uh, still say they allow for criticism of the Israeli government. Like, that's still okay. It's just that anytime anybody articulates criticism of the Israeli government, that gets defined as anti-Semitic. So in the, in the instance of criticism, uh, anti-Semitism is the, the thing that's brought out. So I, I'm just curious how this kind of, uh, conflating these things, uh, on the, the right wing side of things, what, what impact that has had on, uh, the J- Jewish community that is maybe, you know, f- at the center, uh, you know, not necessarily the folks who are already thinking of themselves as anti-Zionists, but, uh, you know, people who are in the center want to criticize Israel uh, and then find out, you know, uh, actually you're you're being anti-Semitic. Yeah, I just think it's meant, I mean, I'll be honest, I think it's been really damaging for discussion and debate. I think it's 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 like it's like calling somebody a bad Jew, right? That's basically what you're saying to them. If you're if you're saying you can be Jewish and anti-Semitism, if you are like Jew or not, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. What you're saying is that if you have a certain position on Israel and you're Jewish, like you, you hate yourself. So, so it's 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 a different version of the same thing. It's also moving the conversation away from. And this is not to say that there is not criticism of Israel that's anti-Semitic. Of course, there is. This is not to say that some anti-Zionists are not anti-Semites. Of course, they are. But it is oftentimes, I think a way to move the conversation from what we're actually talking about, which is the Israeli government and its actions and the, and previous Israeli government's actions to anti-Semitism. And it's not even like, a, it's not, it's not even a robust discussion of anti-Semitism. It's, it's a way to shut down discussion. Um, and that's true within Jewish communities and in Jewish spaces. And that's true more broadly and outside of it. Um, and I, you know, I would just say there are leading Jewish scholars and it, it's, I mean, it, it's still, but it's it, it's even silly to feel like you have to do this, right? To be like, well, like there are Jewish studies professors who aren't Zionists and they're not anti-Semites. Like, I we, we shouldn't have to, I feel like I shouldn't have to play these reindeer games, but I am because I think it's important to to, to like 
try to back up what you're saying. And I, I'm not speaking about hypothetical individuals. There are real people who are deeply dedicated to the study of Judaism and Jewishness and to Jewish life who, under Greenblatt's definition, under Jonathan Greenblatt's, you know, definition, are perpetuating anti-Semitism. Um, and I think it's meant to have a chilling effect, consciously or not, but, you know, it's meant to have a chilling effect. And I think that's that's wrong. And by the way, people who say, oh, one of the things that I really value about Judaism and Jewish life is that there's all this questioning and discussion and debate. It's like, okay, then, then live it. You know, like, let's, here, here's 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 your opportunity to live those values that you purport to, to hold so dear. So why don't we end on where do you think Generation Z is headed? Is it just more of the same? Is there anything interesting? Do you see any changes? Well, for one thing, I think the people who are even younger than we are, and we are very young. Um, no, I think that they are even like they're they're really not buying the story. Um, well, I mean, we should say that we know that it's that the polarization trend is continuing, right? That that younger conservative Jews tend to be more conservative, and this tends to align. You know, the Orthodox traditionally Orthodox tend to be more conservative. Uh, those who are not tend to be more left-leaning so that split will continue although i do think that that's like there are places where people meet um i don't mean to say that like all concern all conservatives are that's not what i'm saying but i do think that right now we're seeing uh increasing polarization and also uh increasing pluralism i do think that will continue i do think that you know we're gonna i do think that criticism not just of the israeli government but of israel more broadly is going to is is it's just it's going to keep happening um and i don't really know when you have american jewish institutions just trying to guard the borders of that discussion so tightly and so rigidly i don't i don't know what that does to their relationship to the people that they claim to to represent and speak for um but the other thing that i that i say about future leaning questions which is a cop-out but i also do i also do really believe it is that like i don't think we know what it's going to look like 50 years from now i i, and I think if we did like in the same way that 50 years ago i don't think that people would have thought that today would look like it does i don't think that we can imagine what will look like 50 years from now i think there will still be american jewish life i just can't i just can't picture what it looks like um and you know what Personally, I'm totally fine with that. I think one constant of the American Jewish tradition is change. And that if you try to stop it, you are in fact only contributing to the way in which the change occurs. Um, my hope is that along the way, people stop trying to police other people's Jewish identity and at the very least, um, you know, stop stop measuring their own according to somebody else's rubric that they've internalized. But we'll see. We'll see whether or not that happens. Emily Tompkin, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, check out Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. And we look forward to having you back when you publish your next book. Thank you so much. Thank you.